Hello, welcome to Rusty Sonnets, the podcast where I take an old poem, read it out, give it a good going over before I go off on one. My name is Niall and today we'll be looking at Alexander Pope's essay on criticism. You heard right, essay. Now you might be thinking, I, I'm, I wanted to listen to a poem today, Niall, not an essay. That's if you're not too up on Alexander Pope and the kind of thing that he did. Um, this is a verse essay. It is an essay written in verse. It's an essay written in heroic couplets. Um, this is something he borrowed from classical poets. Alexander Pope was a poet of the 18th century. Um, a lot of historical stuff happens before we kind of set the scene for what Alexander Pope and other poets such as um, John Dryden were writing about. So in between our last poet, John Donne, his historical epoch, this is what's happened. We've had um, we've had a new king after Elizabeth, James I. Um, I think we've had another cute new king after that. Then that king had his head chopped off. Um, there was a civil war. Then England or Britain really was run as a republic by Oliver Cromwell after the king's head was cut off. And then um, Charles II, after Cromwell's death, uh, there was a truce negotiated between royalists and parliamentarians. And Charles II rose to the throne again, so the monarchy was restored, and it was an era called the Restoration. Um, but this wasn't just the Restoration, so it wasn't just the monarchy um, returning that sort of added character to this era. This is already, this is, we, we were also in a time after Renaissance called the Enlightenment, so the beginning of the Enlightenment. So where great uh, technological and scientific advances and intellectual advances as well were made. Now, there are many specific material backgrounds to the Enlightenment that I'll go on, go into after I've read the poem, but I really wanted to just set the scene for the kind of poem that Alexander Pope was writing at the time and why we have an essay on criticism rather than something about someone's feelings. Now, just to give you a quick background on the kinds of poetry that we're dealing with and different genres of poetry, your idea of a poem is probably a lyric poem. A lyric poem is a poem written in the first person by the poet. The poet is often but not always identical with the speaker, with the I that is used in the poem. And the I is often talking about an emotional state. It's a, a, a sort of certain emotional moment in their life. There might be an experience that spurs this emotional response, but ultimately it is about that. It's about a situation or an experience, but it's told from the vantage point of the speaker's emotional involvement in that. That is a lyric poem. We then, in the second episode with the flea, not the flea, sorry. We then, in the second episode with the Trois Corbys, the ballad, we had a sort of narrative poem. So a poem that told a story in the same vein that you had epic poems in ancient times. So this is, these are poem ballads of poems that told stories. Now, the poem that we looked at last week is quite interesting. The Flea by John Donne. People would define it as a dramatic lyric now we haven't looked at dramatic monologues yet so these were poems that were written in in this in a character um in a certain situation almost like a sort of speech in the middle of a play but everything was confined to that monologue by that one character but with Dunn's the flea it was a dramatic lyric what's the difference between a lyric poem and a dramatic monologue and then a dramatic lyric well with Dunn's poem last week it was about a certain situation so in that sense it was dramatic the happening the thing happening was happening in a certain situation a certain stage there was almost a sense of action happening in the poem that is that the flea has bitten both people and the uh, speaker in the poem is trying to go to bed with the woman that he's addressing so but at the same time it's still from that poet's emotional state of being so it's a lyric poem in that sense that's why it's a dramatic lyric Today we have an, a verse essay. Um, this is very different, and yes, it is like an essay in the sense that, um, in the sense that the intellectual ideas and concepts are being explored by Alexander Pope, but it's different from what we might think of as an essay in the sense that perhaps it is more fulfilling the role that maybe a blog or an editorial 
or a commentary piece might fulfill today instead that we read in a newspaper. And this is interesting because this was a time when sort of newspapers were in circulation and journals and periodicals were in circulation. And there was very much a culture where there where was an exchange of ideas. And so this form of poetry rose to prominence, the verse essay. People didn't really want to hear about the fee-fees of the poet, and the poet didn't want to talk about their fee-fees. It wasn't important. We were in the midst of the Enlightenment. We were in the midst of important times for the human beings in their climb towards a greater state of being and greater knowledge. And that is why this verse essay rose to prominence. I think I've set that scene enough. I'm just going to say a few things before I read the poem like I normally do. Firstly, this poem is a bit longer than the poems I've read already. And because of that, I partially, oh, dear listener, whoever you are, all 10 of you, I fear losing you on this. I fear losing you. So I'm going to begin this by I normally give a little pep talk about how we're going to listen to this poem together. I'll read out the poem. You'll listen and how it's just the flyover. The first reading is just a reconnaissance mission before we get deeper into certain aspects and certain segments of the poem. But I thought of a metaphor that I think Alexander Pope would agree with he would find it agreeable I, i'd hope so or maybe he would find it vulgar and laugh at me and write a satirical poem about how much of an idiot i am but i like i like this this metaphor occurred to me while i was doing this so for the purposes of us approaching the poem and reading it for the first time and then exploring it afterwards i'd like to say that a poem is like a mountain but we can divide mountains into two categories in that sense the first category i would call the painter's mountain what is the painter's mountain i, I always think of mount fuji i am not an expert in mountains in any way but when i think of mount fuji i think of a distinctive beautiful image of mount fuji i would love to see mount fuji with my own eyes sometime in this life this short life i have left on earth i think that's one thing i would love to go to, to to see that mountain in the distance like in all those beautiful paintings and woodcuts by japanese artists but we get there's a lot of appreciation we can get from mount fuji just by seeing it just by looking at it from a distance we can take the whole mountain in in a sense in maybe a superficial sense and appreciate the beauty of it and maybe we we, we don't need anything more than that now that's that's very much analogous to our first reading of a poem in the sense that we look over it and maybe if it's the poem equivalent of a painter's mountain we don't have to go too deep into it we can we can have that one reading and appreciate it in that sense in a, in in a way that doesn't involve close reading or going deeper into it so that's the first instance that we can have a poem being like a mountain a painter's mountain but on the other hand there's also a climber's mountain in the sense that maybe this mountain doesn't look great in the distance maybe it's not something you can take in straight away just by looking at it maybe it's not that appealing um an example i think of i don't know why i think of k2 i'm sure k2 looks amazing from a distance but all i know about k2 is it's a very dangerous mountain to climb it is like the second highest mountain in the world everest being the first but i can't really recall this instant image of what k2 is in the same way that i can recall an image of mount fuji into my mind but that said, maybe K2 is what we call a climber's mountain. You know, people might, I know people die in it a lot, so maybe it's not the best example. It's a very dangerous mountain. Um, a climber's mountain is a mountain that doesn't look great from a distance, but the climber says to you, but mate, you have to get there. You have to get to the bottom of that thing and look right up and then grab onto the rocks and pull yourself up and then swing from this face to another and sort of see the sudden change in aspect as you kind of climb from one part here to one part here you got to get to know this mountain up close and personal you got to get to know every crag every little 
sheer face every little cave that maybe pops up along the way that is the beauty of this mountain this mountain is a journey it's not something you take in in one way it's something you have to get to know in all of its intricate little details so that's the climber's mountain you get what i'm saying here i think some poems are like the poem equivalent of the climber's mountain we read over them for the first time and and sometimes they can we can feel more distance from it we think oh my goodness that wasn't very pleasant that first reading but it is when we read it closer that we get more of an enjoyment from that poem. And this is what I'm saying. You see, some people, I'm already beginning in my role as critic before we investigate Alexander Pope's idea of the role of a critic. And that is that I'm fine with either kind of poem. I think some poems can be the equivalent of a painter's mountain and a climber's mountain. There's something you get from that poem on that first reading. But then when you go into it, you get tons of other stuff from it as well. But ultimately... I have no problem with poems that almost alienate the reader on the first reading, but somehow are more rewarding on subsequent, more detailed readings. And on the other hand, I have no problem with poems where we pretty much get the gist of it right away when we read it right away. And the pleasure is very much an instant pleasure. I am not a snob about either of these ways. I love poetry and I'm glad I'm becoming more open minded about poetry as I get older because I can just enjoy more of it. And I hope this podcast will make you more open-minded about poetry too. So we are going to read. <laughs> we are finally getting round to reading an essay and criticism by Alexander Pope. I think it's a little bit of both this poem. I think it's a bit of a painter's mountain poem. But I also think it's a bit of a, um, um, a climber's mountain poem as well. This poem is written in heroic couplets in the sense that the end of the first line rhymes with the end of the second line and then the end of the third line rhymes with the end of the fourth line um, and that carries on. Also, it's written in iambic pentameter. We've talked about iambic pentameter before. It's basically five stressed syllables um, but they're accompanied by a unstressed syllable preceding it. You'll get the idea of it if you don't know it but the basic gist of it is Di da di da di da di da di da. That's how each line sounds. Um, one more little thing to guide you in your listening to this poem for the first time, and that is, he often starts off talking about abstract abstract concepts, but then he will always come up with an image, a really interesting image to illustrate that concept afterwards. So if you get lost at any point during this, normally it's quite interesting because another image or something else pops up to explain it again. So don't worry too much if one bit flies over your head. Just keep listening, see if the next bit appeals to you and so on like that. I think that's the best way of reading this poem or listening to it. I'm going to start reading it right now. I'm just reading part one of Pope's essay of criticism on criticism. But even though it's only part one, it's still longer than the other poems that we've looked at so far in this podcast. So please stay with me. I'll see you at the other side. OK, great. An essay on criticism by Alexander Pope. Part one. Tis hard to say. If greater want of skill appear in writing or in judging ill, but of the two, less dangerous is the offence to tire our patience than mislead our sense. Some few in that, but numbers err in this. Ten cents you're wrong for one who writes amiss. A fool might once himself alone expose, now one in verse makes many more in prose. "'Tis with our judgments as our watches, none go just alike, yet each believes his own. In poets, as true genius is but rare, true taste as seldom is the critic's share. Both must alike from heaven derive their light, those born to judge as well as those to write. Let such teach others who themselves excel, and censure freely who have written well. Authors are partial to their wit, tis true." but are not critics to their judgment too? Yet if we look more closely, we shall find most have the seeds of judgment in their mind. Nature affords at least a glimmering light. The lines, though touched but faintly, are drawn right. But as the slightest sketch, if justly traced, is by ill colouring but the more disgraced, so by false learning is good sense defaced. Some are bewildered 
in the maze of schools, and some made coxcombs, nature meant, but fools. In search of wit, these lose their common sense, and then turn critics in their own defence. Each burns alike, who can or cannot write, or with a rival's or an eunuch's spite. All fools have still an itching to deride, and fain would be upon the laughing side. If Mavius scribble in Apollo's spite, there are who judge still worse than he can write. Some have at first for wits, then poets past, turn critics next, and proved plain fools at last. Some neither can for wits nor critics pass, as heavy mules are neither horse nor ass. Those half-formed witlings, numerous in our isle, as half-formed insects on the banks of Nile, unfinished things, one knows not what to call, their generations so equivocal, to tell em would a hundred tongues require, or one vain wits that might a hundred tire. But you who seek to give and merit fame, and justly bear a critic's noble name. Be sure yourself and your own reach to know how far your genius, taste, and learning go. Launch not beyond your depth, but be discreet, and mark that point where sense and dullness meet. Nature, to all things fix the limits fit, and wisely curbed proud man's pretending wit, as on the land while here the ocean gains in other parts it leaves wide sandy plains thus in the soul while memory prevails the solid power of understanding fails where beams of warm imagination play the memory's soft figures melt away one science only will one genius fit so vast is art so narrow human wit not only bounded to peculiar arts, but often those confined to single parts. Like kings, we lose the conquests gained before by vain ambitions still to make them more. Each might his several province well command, would all but stoop to what they understand. First, follow nature, and your judgment frame, by her just standard which is still the same, Unerring nature, still divinely bright, one clear, unchanged, and universal light. Life, force, and beauty must to all impart, at once the source and end and test of art. Art, from what fund each just supply provides, works without show and without pomp presides. In some fair body thus the informing soul, with spirits feeds, with vigour fills the whole, each motion guides, and every nerve sustains itself unseen, but in the effects remains. Some, to whom heaven in wit has been profuse, want as much more to turn it to its use, for wit and judgment often are at strife, though meant each other's aid like man and wife. "'Tis more to guide than spur the muse's steed, "'restrain his fury than provoke his speed. "'The winged courser, like a generous horse, "'shows most true metal when you check his course.'" Those rules of old, discovered, not devised, are nature still, but nature methodized. Nature, like liberty, is but restrained, by the same laws which first herself ordained. Hear how learned Greece her useful rules indites when to repress and when to indulge our flights. High on Parnassus' top, her son she showed and pointed out those arduous paths they trod, held from afar aloft the immortal prize and urged the rest by equal steps to rise. Just precepts thus from great examples given, she drew from them what they derived from heaven. The generous critic fanned the poet's fire and taught the world with reason to admire. Then criticism, the muse's handmaid, proved to dress her charms and make her more beloved. But following wits from that intention strayed, who could not win the mistress, wooed the maid. Against the poets their own arms they turned, sure to hate most the men from whom they'd learned. So modern apothecaries taught the art by doctor's bills to play the doctor's part. 
bold in the practice of mistaken rules, prescribe, apply and call their masters fools. Some on the leaves of ancient authors pray, nor time nor moths ever spoil so much as they. Some dryly plain without invention's aid, write dull receipts how poems may be made. These leave the sense, their learning, to display, and those explain the meaning quite away. You then, whose judgment the right course should steer, know well each ancient's proper character, his fable, subject, scope in every page, religion, country, genius of his age. Without all these at once before your eyes, cavil you may, but never criticise. Be Homer's works your study and delight. Read them by day and meditate by night. Thence form your judgment, thence your maxims bring, and trace the muses upright to their spring. Still with itself compared, his text peruse, and let your comment be the Mantuan muse. When first young Maro, in his boundless mind, a work to outlast immortal Rome designed, perhaps he seemed above the critic's law and but from nature's fountain scorn to draw. But when to examine every part he came, nature and Homer were, he found, the same. Convinced, amazed, he checks the bold design, and rules as strict his laboured work confine, as if a stagirite overlooked each line. Learn hence, for ancient rules adjust esteem, to copy nature is to copy them. Some beauties yet, no precepts can declare, for there's a happiness as well as care. Music resembles poetry in each, are nameless graces which no methods teach, and which a master hand alone can reach. If, where the rules not far enough extend, since rules were made but to promote their end, some lucky license answers to the fool, the intent proposed that license is a rule. Thus, Pegasus a nearer way to take, may boldly deviate from the common track. Great wits sometimes may gloriously offend, and rise to faults true critics dare not mend. From vulgar bonds with brave disorder part, and snatch a grace beyond the reach of art, which without passing through the judgment gains the heart, and all its end at once remains. In prospects thus, some objects please our eyes, which out of nature's common order rise, the shapeless rock, or hanging precipice. But though the ancients thus their rules invade, as kings dispense with laws themselves have made, moderns beware, or if you must offend, against the precept, never transgress its end. Let it be seldom, and compelled by need, and have at least their precedent to plead. The critic else proceeds without remorse, seizes your fame, and puts his laws in force. I know there are, to whose presumptuous thoughts these freer beauties, even in them, seem faults. Some figures monstrous and misshaped appear, considered singly or beheld too near, which but proportion to their light or place, due distance reconciles to form and grace. A prudent chief not always must display his powers in equal ranks and fair array, but with the occasion and the place comply, conceal his force, nay seem sometimes to fly. Those oft the stratagems which errors seem, nor is it Homer nods, but we that dream. Still green with bays, each ancient altar stands above the reach of sacrilegious hands, secure from flames, from envy's fiercer rage, destructive war, and all-involving age. See, from each clime the learned their incense bring, here in all tongues consenting paeans ring. In praise so just let every voice be joined, and fill the general chorus of mankind. Hail, bards triumphant, born in happier days, immortal heirs of universal praise, whose honours with increase of ages grow, as streams roll down, enlarging as they flow. Nations unborn, your mighty name shall sound, and worlds applaud that must not yet be found. Oh, may some spark of your celestial fire, the last and meanest of your sons inspire, that on weak wings from far pursues your flights, glows while he reads, but trembles as he writes, to teach vain wits a science little known, to admire superior sense and doubt their own.
that was part one so what do we deal with here thank you for listening to all of that i don't know how long that was but obviously it's much longer than the other poems that i read how did you feel what did you get from that was there anything that maybe stuck in your head? Did you find yourself lost for long passages? An interesting thing to start off with here is actually the, this was very accessible poetry when it was written. So chances are we just don't know some of the references and we find the language a little strange rather than it being something particularly highfalutin for its time. The gist of the argument of the poem goes along two lines. Um, firstly, Pope is talking about the vocations of the poet and the vocations of the critic, the person who judges poetry. And so he talks about wit and judgment. Now, wit isn't just someone saying something very clever on a game show and everyone goes, ho, 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 very witty, very witty. Wit is something a bit more. It is almost like the imagination or the intelligent use of the imagination. That's what Pope defines as wit i would i would declare myself now judgment is slightly different it's the ability to be looking upon the works of poetry and the works of wit and seeing if it's any good perhaps and writing well about that as well so pope has these two strands of argument he has these two strands of argument the first one is he places the poet higher than the critic the poet is the one closest to the source. The poet is the one creating the work. And then the critic, it is the critic's job to, in one sense, help the poet out by giving an honest appraisal of their work, um, but to also communicate that to a wider audience. It's pretty much the idea of what criticism is today. But there's certainly an idea illustrated in the poem that it is the poet that is doing God's work and it is the critic who should support the poet in doing so. The critic should be there to punish the bad poets and put them in their place, but to recognise the good poets and help them along, bring their work to a wider audience, but also spur them on in, in their continued trek uh, to, to be doing God's work in writing poetry. So what is God's work? I've already said God's work. So this is the second aspect of the poem, which is, so he's, he's giving us an idea of what a critic's job is, but he's also trying to tell us what is good in poetry. How can we, how can we find something that is objectively good in a poem? Um, why is one opinion better than another opinion? Now it is, it is, um, it is popes. It is, it's not just popes actually, Now, it is not just the opinion of Alexander Pope, but it's the opinion of many people at the time that science is is beginning to show. I mean, there's a line from Pope which is, said, which is, God said, let Newton be, and all was light. Isaac Newton had published his Principia, which was his big mag magnum opus. His Many of his greatest ideas are summed up in his Principia. And, and what we find... It might be Principia, by the way. I'm an autodidact, so I can really screw up in pronouncing things. Principia, 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 mate. Anyway, so the Principia sort of showed that, you know, the, the great design of nature that is illustrated through physics. Um, so Pope believed in the world being the nature being the rational work of God. And so when we create our poem, it should resemble nature in the sense that nature is this rationally constructed thing. So all we have to do is really look honestly to nature and let what is natural inform our work. And that is how art will create something beautiful. Follow the same laws of nature. The laws of art that we follow are taken from the greater laws of nature that God sets in motion and that great scientists and thinkers like newton as well as many of the natural philosophers and the ancient philosophers that they discovered so there's a natural law that is then interpreted into a law such as um, aristotle who was mentioned in the poem as the stagirite that's uh, because he was from stagiria so so 
Aristotle wrote a, a volume called Poetics, giving his ideas of what makes a good poem and what poetry should be. So there's the laws of the ancients, there's the laws of nature, and then there's the laws of poetry. And that's, and that's for, you know, it's all ultimately divinely ordained. And that's how Pope sees it. So it is the idea of, that the poet should be doing God's work in following these natural rules of nature in their own work. And then it is the job of the critic to encourage this to damn the poetry that is not doing this job and to find and encourage and to popularize the poetry that is i think that's i i think that's quite a good summation <laughs> of the gist of the poem now the poem is written in rhyming couplets heroic couplets these are things obviously the the, the idea that um the heroic meter is something that Pope has got from sort of older classical works. He loved the um, epistles of Horace, for example. Um, an epistle is an, a sort of a publicly addressed letter. It means a letter, but often epistles, when they're written, much like the epistles in the Bible, they're written to someone, but everyone is kind of allowed to have a look. It's a bit like an open letter as it appears in a newspaper. So some of some of Alexander Pope's poems were written as epistles in this sense. They were addressing a public they might address address one particular person but ultimately they are addressing everybody um, this isn't some sort of little lyrical thing that's kept private this is a this is a public poetry so they're written in rhyming couplets in iambic pentameter each couplet is its own unit and what you might notice in the same way that when we looked at ballads we noticed that the action was relayed piece by piece the atomic unit, you could say, of this kind of poetry of Pope's verse essay is the heroic couplet. These are the little pieces that he builds up his argument with. These themselves build up, in, build up into what we would call verse paragraphs rather than stanzas because they're not of uniform length. There are no rules that dictate the size of them. The verse paragraph is normally, the size of it is dictated by what Pope is arguing and um, when he's finishing that argument and moving on to another one. So it's very much the sense rather than the sound or rules like that that dictate the, how, how long each verse paragraph is. So the idea of meter and rhyme in order to sort of relay things in a piece-by-piece -piece sense is not the only thing we look out for when we read um, the poetry of Alexander Pope and of his contemporaries. The other thing we look at is... We, we look for the images that, that Pope is using. We, might, we remember that this school of poets that Pope was part of, the Augustans, they, they did not look favourably upon the metaphysical poets, the poets that we looked at last week with John Donne's The Flea, um, and their crazy use of imagery, their violent use of imagery. They were much more like the idea that, again, this idea that nature already informs everything that we do and that nature is rational. They look for imagery that perhaps wasn't too surprising, wasn't too violent, fitted in in a more gentle way with the argument that was being made. The argument was more important than the image. The use of the image was there to illustrate the argument and make the argument easier to understand. From my introduction, I spoke about how he sometimes speaks in abstract terms and then uses an image to illustrate that argument afterwards. Um, a little thing about Alexander Pope, before we look at these images again and reread some of these passages of the poem, because we're climbing the mountain now, people. Pope was massively popular. He was hugely popular in his day and age. He's often credited as the first English poet to be able to make a living solely from his own poetry. Now, he did this by writing translations of the Iliad and other classical works of Homer. He then created his own volume of Shakespeare as well, and he used the subscription model. So he would get people to pay subscriptions and then he would deliver them to people piece by piece. And this made him very wealthy. And he was able to buy a, an extra house in Twickenham in the countryside. It was the countryside outside London then. There was, there was no such thing as suburbs. There was the city and then there was the countryside. So he was able to buy himself a lovely big country house with fancy gardens and all kinds of ornaments. And he rose to great fame because of this. But at the same time, he was not a darling 
of the critics. And part of the reason why he was perhaps attacked by the newspapers, there were a couple of reasons. One, I think that they, um, he came from a Catholic upbringing. Um, he came from a Catholic background. His father was um, a merchant, I think, but a very wealthy one. But because they were Catholics, they weren't allowed to be educated. I'm not sure if they were even allowed to live in London. He grew up in the Windsor Forest, uh, which isn't a forest anymore because most of the trees were chopped down. It is now Windsor Great Park. So he grew up around that way. Um, but but And yet he was able to become a very, very popular poet. Um, another reason why I think people looked down on him um, was because he was very ill as a child. And so this stunted his growth. I think he was around sort of four foot something. Maybe I think he might. Even, I can't remember how short he was. I might have to correct myself at a later date about this, but not right now. But he was very short. He had a hunchback. He contracted an illness as, as a child and he needed um, and because of this, he needed medical care for the rest of his life. Um, so he was essentially disabled as well and was looked down upon from that, I guess, because he wasn't some fine outstanding idea of, 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 of classical manhood. I don't know. But um, and one other thing that caused the critics to not like him in newspapers is that he was always calling people out by name in his poems, not just calling out the critics that he didn't like and the poets that he didn't like, but sometimes almost getting into trouble for this too, calling out the rulers, calling out the king, calling out the nobility. He was calling out everyone, this man. He was kicking up a stink. Some people called him um, sort of one of the first rappers around in that sense because of the way in which he did, he addressed people. So we're going to look at the images, actually, and then I'll go a bit more into some of the historical background because we, we're getting near hot take territory. And therefore, um, you know, I'd rather sort of get nearer to hot take territory territory in the moments before I go off on one or wander off on one, because that's that's my new saying now. So let's look at the images. I've highlighted the images in the text that I've read from so I can easily go back to them. But it's good just to see his, his grasp of imagery. So in this segment here, um, when he's talking about how uh, authors are partial to their wit, but in the same way, critics are partial to their judgment too. And how wit, which is that kind of imaginative intelligence that goes behind poetry and judgment, they're both particular skills. And he's pointing out actually that you can't be the master of either of them throughout the poem hence everyone should play their role and be proud of their role so yes yet if we took more closely we will find most of seeds of judgment in their mind nature affords at least a glimmering light the lines though touched but faintly are drawn bright but as the slightest sketch is justly traced is by ill colouring but the more disgraced so by false learning is good sense defaced He's saying that everybody, let's face it, he's saying everybody has the capacity to understand what is good in poetry and what is good in learning. It is innate within us. Why? Because he sees it all from, as coming from nature, as we've already said. If, if, if the quality in art is actually something that is derived from nature, then we also have that kind of an innate understanding within us. But he says at the same time that actually bad learning can deface this. And he gives us an image. He gives us an image to illustrate it, which is tracing. So there's the glimmering, there's a glimmering image, the faint image of something in people's mind. But it's like how you build learning on that is like doing a tracing of that image. And if you do a bad tracing of that image on your tracing paper with your pencil, um, we probably know this anyway from when we did tracing as kids, when we traced an image we saw already that the shapes started to warp, didn't they? Things started to look a bit crazy and strange. We never came out with a perfect reproduction of the image that we traced. There was a likeness going on, but it was already warped and distorted. So he uses this imagery to talk about how, how yes, we have an innate understanding of the world, but bad learning can warp and disturb this innateness you see what works about that image you see how it's sort of a gentle image in itself it's not too surprising it has a pleasing logic um logical quality to it this is what this is what pope would call wit um but sort of a good wit you could say true wit i think he talked about true wit and false wit false wit pope thought was the pun he didn't like puns. So true it would be when we would find a good image that would illustrate a concept 
or an idea or a relationship between images. That's what he thought was true wit. When when this image would actually on many levels illustrate an idea or a concept. False wit, he thought, was when we just found words that sounded like each other. So um, I hear a cliche in a lot of poems on the poetry scene. I've heard this one quite a bit when people talk about the homeless. And I am by no means trying to make light of a serious problem of homelessness. But I think we all agree that sort of cliches in poetry don't help homelessness. And one of the cliches I would pick up on on hearing it would be always be, yes, that man on, co on the corner, is he begging for change or is he begging for change? And some people would be like, wow, but Pope would disapprove of this. He does not like puns. He hated puns so much that he actually got rid of the puns in his own volumes of Shakespeare. He edited them out. He just wanted to keep the good stuff. Um, we all like puns now, you know, especially because we've, if we have no puns, we have no dad jokes as well. So puns are good in my book, but Pope didn't like them. Let's look at some of these other images. So... Here's an interesting thing where he talks about, I remember, remember we were saying, like, I was just implying that Pope is saying that you can be, you can be a critic, you can be a wit, you can have judgment or wit, but you can't have both. Um, he begins with this other idea of why we're limited. So he says, like kings, we lose the conquests gained before by vain ambitions still to make them more. Each might is several province well command would all but stoop to what they understand. So in this image, he's pointing out that, you know, that, that, that if we learn one thing and we suddenly look to learn something else, our head doesn't expand. It doesn't fill with knowledge. I'm next to my bookshelf right now recording this. You know, like pretentious interviews when people sit in front of bookshelves. And I think when they sit in front of bookshelves, they try like an intellectual, an academic, when they're interviewed by the news, they always sit in front of their bookshelf with these books. And we know they haven't read all of them. We know what the books, but the books are meant to illustrate this is all in my head. I have read all of these books and all these books sit dormant in my head. But as Homer once said, Homer Simpson, not Homer the poet, um, every time I learn something new, it pushes out something old. And um, I'm paraphrasing Homer Simpson there, but I'm sure that's what he said. And I think this is ultimately what Pope is saying here. You learn something else, guess what? You lose like a king who's invading another country now. They forget to look after their own country. And so they, they, they or, or another country that they invaded the time before in expanding their empire. Um, you know, they, they can only govern over so much. So um, he, he also, he, so he mentions this same kind of thing a few lines earlier. Nature to all things fixed the limits fit and wisely curbed proud man's pretending wit. As on the land, while here the ocean gains, in other parts it leaves wide sandy plains. Thus in the soul, while memory prevails, the solid power of understanding fails. So there's an interesting um interesting thing here which is he says where beams of warm imagination play the memory soft figures melt away if so again there's a difference between the critic and the poet maybe the critic remembers the laws remembers other bodies of work and uses their memory to inform their judgment whereas the poet is involved in the work of the imagination and cannot have that same kind of memory skill as the critic but what does he use here he uses the idea as, as on the land while the ocean gains in other parts it leaves wide sandy plains using the idea of the tides, he knows that when the tide comes in on one place, the tide comes out on the other. So there's the beach all exposed on one place, but now the sea has come in completely. And he's saying the same thing about forms of knowledge. If we kind of learn one thing, yes, we can behold the beach, but now the sea has covered this other thing that we learned about before. We'll look at some more images. For wit and judgment often are at strife, though meant each other's aid like man and wife. Tis more to guide than spur the muse's steed, restrain his fury than provoke his speed. The winged courser, like a generous horse, shows more true metal when you check his course. I'm gonna so so we're beginning now with this idea. I mean when when Pope mentions man and wife, we know from his other writings on on women but this is not an equal relationship. He's, you know, one's playing a more supporting role here. Unfortunately, that's the mindset in this day and age, at least. But what Pope is, so Pope is saying the critic is playing the role of the wife and the, and the poet is the, is the role of the man. The, you know, the, it's the critic that kind of has to do the housekeeping. It's the critic who has to do all these domestic duties. He's almost calling criticism that, whereas the poet is going out there and doing the real work. Um, 
but then it's sort of it's interesting that actually you know he he suddenly he suddenly talks about the muse being a horse after this and again it's sort of the, the, the in a way this is now the critic is providing wise counsel in how the poet can steer the course of this wild muse so um you know, it's more to guide than spur the muse's steed, restrain his fury than provoke his speed. Um, so you get this idea that it's the poet who's in this relationship with the muse, but it's a critic who's helping him to sort of keep its to restrain the fury and um, keep its course. We move on. I love this one. I love this image. Again, it is it is a bit sexist. Um, but but it's an interesting image when we think about the work of criticism. So he says, um, the, the generous poet critic fanned the poet's fire and taught the world with reason to admire, to admire the poet. Um, but then he says, then criticism the muse's handmaid proved to dress her charms and make her more beloved. But following wits from that invention strayed, who could not win the mistress, wooed the maid. Against the poets their own arms they turned, sure to hate most the men from whom they'd learned. So before I get on to the ideas of doctors, he's, he's, yeah, he's pointing out a certain bitterness to the critic. This is an idea, this is something that a lot of people fire at critics. Oh, you're not, you can't do that art yourself, so you just have to talk about it and have a go at people. Now, I think most sensible people will say that the critic's skill is a particular skill. I don't think necessarily very good poets make the best critics either. Um, even though many poets in this day and age have to do both, or quite a few do both, um, there's something to be said for someone who is more a critic than a poet. I think their criticism is often better than the criticism written by the poet. But he's sort of going with this idea of the critic who's a bitter, failed poet, so who could not win the mistress wooed the maid, the maid being the handmaiden of poetry. Um, he then compares apothecaries, which is basically a pharmacy, um, to doctors themselves and saying so modern apothecaries taught the art by doctors bills to play the doctor's part so I'm writing bills for doctors and, and picking up all this stuff oh I could be a doctor too I mean I'm just getting this prescription then I'm writing out a bill and giving that hey man I can do all this myself I have now taken enough prescriptions that someone with a cold probably needs this medicine so I'll just give it to them but they've lost all the, the, the you know they, they, can, they mistake this ability to put two things together with the deep knowledge a doctor has um, to understand the illness, to understand the medication and put them together. They have a superficial understanding of this thing, the apothecary, whereas the doctor has the deeper understanding of it. They both play their part. It's not the job of the doctor to keep all these medicines and sell them to other people. Um, that's the job of the apothecary. But it's the, um, you know, it's the doctor's job to be deeper into the understanding of the human body and the illness in order to do his job or her job. Oh my goodness, Pope has made me immediately genderize doctors as men. I apologize. By the way, I'm very aware also that it's been a lot of men in this podcast. We are about to look at more woman poets in the weeks to come. I think we might have one more dead white man next week. And then after that, when we're looking at... Um, Victorian poets and modern poets I'm going to look at examples from women because there are loads and it's great but I can talk about this later but for now sorry we're sticking with men for a tiny dead white men for a tiny bit longer we have another I've already described when he speaks about um, someone looking over um, he speaks about someone looking at nature not maybe they're, they're not studying the ancients but they're looking at nature but then when they actually look at the ancients they suddenly understand oh my goodness they're obeying the same rules I'm obeying the same rules so I can use them as intermediaries between me and nature he uses Virgil the Roman poet as an example he wrote his own epic poem about Rome called the Aeonid and um, but it was inspired by the Greek poets such as Homer and so um, he's 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 referred to referred to as the Mantuan, but also um, Maro because that was his name. That was Virgil's name, Maro. So Maro is mentioned in those parts. Someone who is looking at the previous generations, looking at nature, and he's startled to find that both fit beautifully together. So 
Um, he's also he, they also speak about the stagirite. That's Aristotle again. I've mentioned that with his laws of the poetics. Okay, um, a couple more images, and then I'm probably just going to have to go off on one anyway because I'm using up a lot of time here. Um, he speaks about rules, and he uses the idea of yes, again, this is the thing. The critics know the rules, and they stick very closely to the rules. But sometimes it's the job of the poet to disobey the rules. He compares this to Pegasus. Thus, Pegasus, a nearer way to take, may boldly deviate from the common track. Great wits sometimes may gloriously offend and rise to faults true critics dare not mend. So so the common track is the craggy track that we have to walk along. But of course, Pegasus can go from A to B. He thinks that the poet is sometimes, when they're really understanding of nature, they understand the spirit of the rule rather than the letter of the rule. And in the spirit of the rule can go from A to B like Pegasus. Um, whereas the critics mistake the rules for the thing that they come from. They think the rules of themselves are something to be obeyed without questioning. And therefore, when a poet goes out against the rules, but is still concording with the spirit of what is being expressed and the rules of nature, the critics just see it as an offence. I'm going to leave it there with the imagery. You get the idea, I'm sure. So um, I hope that gives enough of an understanding of the poem, his use of imagery within the poem. And um, why the sort of couplet was so important. Um, one more thing about the history before I go off on one. I'll quickly summarise the rest. So part two and part three of Essay on Criticism. Um, part two, he begins to call out bad poetry and bad criticism and giving examples. And then he, he, he gives in the third, he, he starts talking about what we have to do and mentioning again Aristotle and his laws sort of revealed in his poetics and how they concord with the laws of nature. But one more interesting thing, I think, about Pope and the Augustan poets. So why do we go from this lyrical way of writing poetry, poetry of the court, where people are showing how their strength of feeling mixed with their intelligence and their wit can show them to be great people. And therefore, they get given lots of really good jobs by the higher up people in the court. And then it goes from these privately circulated poems between the metaphysical poets where these very strange net metaphors and these quite saucy poems um, are being exchanged that, that change in that sense. But then, by the way, we've missed out Milton. Milton's really important. Obviously, Milton is really important when we're talking about the dead white men. But I've kind of jumped, jumped over Milton. I will jump back to Milton at a later date because Milton deserves a bit more space and a bit more attention. But now we're with the Augustans. And so what is the social context of a poem? That's what I'm saying. How does the social context of the times the poem was written in affect the writing of the poem? Maybe this is why we have the verse essay. One thing, this, is a, this has been a popularized idea. One thing we also got with the Enlightenment was coffee. Um, coffee beans, I think, were discovered. Was discovered. Listen to me. I'm being a blooming patriarchal person by saying doctors and men, and then I say coffee's discovered after that. Mr. Colonial, right away there. I apologise for that. Coffee is introduced to Westerners. Um, I think coffee came from the, the coffee beans were from Africa, from North Africa, I think. And so coffee houses opened in London and altogether, all of a sudden, coffee houses were these social hubs. And I th and not only were they social hubs, you know what coffee does to your people, coffee drinkers on this, you know, who listen to this podcast. I've had a cup before before having before starting this one. Um, it gets your brain racing. So there's this culture suddenly sprung up of people verbalizing ideas, com communicating with each other, debating things within the coffee houses. Everyone would get wired, but there would be newspapers. There would be poems. People would read things aloud to each other and debate and discuss them. And in this sense, we had this value of wit as Pope was talking about it. People wanted to show themselves to be great wits within this coffee house culture. That's why Pope is writing in a more public way, addressing the public. He's not addressing, well, sometimes he addresses one person, but he's very aware of who's overlooking him. And this is very much a very public poetry. His poetry, in a lot of cases, it's quite highbrow in this one, but it can be quite lowbrow in his satires as well. And I think he had that idea of the highbrow and the lowbrow because there, there was a bit more social cohesion in these cultures as well. There was a people who who weren't nobility were, were mixing with people who were richer than them and so coffee seemed to be the great 
equalizer and the coffee house seemed to be the great equalizer so there's this idea of of of, i guess pope as a public intellectual speaking to a public and so i think one thing in speaking to the public and communicating these ideas i think there's a real need to be understood and so he he this is why he wants these clear metaphors this is why he wants to build things up piece by piece in his poetry because he wants to communicate the ideas clearly okay i'll say this idea i'll sum up this idea in abstract conceptual language you don't understand it okay here's an image that illustrates this idea as well as i can think it can and that's the motivation for him he wants to be understood he wants to be clear he wants to relay an argument piece by piece and use clear images that echo the logic of nature he wants to build on that innate understanding that he believes exists within every other human being i think it's time to wander off on one you know i normally say go off on one well today i'm going to wander off on one why am i wandering off on one well because an acronym i realized as i was writing out my notes my very loose notes that i don't even look at while i'm while i'm recording this but writing them before seems to help when i was looking at my notes um i realized that go off on one is an acronym or it can become an acronym which says goo like a baby go off on one and i thought oh my goodness it's too close i have to change it i have to change it and then things are perfect now this is low this is false wit as Pope would call it. It's ultimately a pun, isn't it, when you're creating acronyms. But um, I'm going to wander off on one because it creates an acronym that sounds like... Thank you, Ric Flair. We have abandoned all academic rigour and now we are wandering off on one. Do not use anything that's said from now until the end of a podcast in any essay or assignment. And I wouldn't recommending wouldn't recommend using this podcast as a, a study aid anyway. Something to guide you, to give you that innate understanding that I hope doesn't warp it too not much. But now I am going to warp things. Now I've got five layers of tracing paper with a new image and it just doesn't resemble the other one whatsoever i'm going to go off on one about two things the first thing i'm going to go off on one oh and such an easy and light subject this one is what is the role of the critic and what is quality in art now pope had this idea of nature having this logic to it pope had this idea of the laws of nature being methodical as well nature following methodical laws and us right making art us also follow those laws and there being an innate human understanding to everyone else and this is why we can have objective quality in art and this is why a critic can do a job to actually say whether art is good or not but things have changed science has discovered things that are quite illogical um something can exist in two places at once um things appear to pop up into existence from nothing at the quantum level and causation at the quantum level doesn't seem to work at all causation where one thing knocks into another thing and the other thing carries on in a trajectory that we can predict from how the other thing knocks into it or is about to knock into it at the quantum level things randomly just appear all over the place and there doesn't seem to be any determinism at the quantum level as in things seem to happen in very random ways um so what i'm saying is things get crazy at that level and so this idea of the sort of wonderful natural laws being balanced and prescribed we can't really go with those um and also in modern times you know from modernism onwards the idea we, we don't really trust authorities in the same way and so if i'm asked about what the job of a critic is well firstly let me start with that big one i don't think there is any objective quality in art i don't think there is i think people like different stuff different stuff can have different effects on different human beings and different human beings have different tastes and while we might have some innate things that make us similar we might have some things that give us all pleasure look at food the most delicious thing in the world for you is not necessarily delicious for someone else so so i i i mean we objectivity is something that that just we can't there are so many things in life that we now deny um have an objective basis so to so art i just think ultimately something that comes from the human imagination we have real trouble um finding a real objective a criteria of quality that goes with that so i don't believe there is such a thing as objective quality 
in art. It really is a case of you create something, someone else might like it. And that's it. That is it. So what is the job of the critic? Well, here's the thing. We can have different reasons to like things. And sometimes if we enjoy something, we can help someone else to enjoy it by explaining why we enjoy it. Or if we think something else is bad, we can convince some poor soul who enjoyed it before to also think it's bad with a good argument about why it is bad. So what we have, if if what um, Pope called as judgment, I don't see in the same way that I don't see one quality of art, one objective thing in all of art, one objective barometer of quality. Um, I see different tastes as well or different what 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 Pope would call judgment, different things of judgment, different ideas of judgment, different qualities of judgment. So critics offer different judgments or critical frameworks. If I like a critic, it's because I like their taste. It's not so much always that their taste is the same as mine. Sometimes they hate a film that I really like, but I might really enjoy how they express how they hate that film. But ultimately, I know that where my tastes coincide with the taste of this critic, I can trust this critic. It's not that a particular film or poem or work of art is objectively great. It is more that my ideas of what is good in, in art and what I enjoy and what I find meaningful in art can sometimes line up with a taste of a critic in art or the other way around. Through that critic's great means of communication, that critic can make me appreciate something in a new way. And I think that's all it is. There's just varying critical interpretations and critical frameworks. Ultimately, when I'm saying there's no objective quality in art, yes, I am saying that Seven Samurai and Citizen Kane are not objectively better than Pick a Transformers movie or Breakdance 2, Electric Boogaloo or Tommy Wazo's the, the, the Room, you know, or the, the other film that was seen as the worst film of all time, Plan 9 from Outer Space by Ed Wood. There is no objective barometer that says one is better than the other. But there are critical frameworks that we might enjoy and that we might trust that when they're applied to these films, will say, according to this idea of taste, this film is better. I'm sure there are people that enjoy The Room, going to showings of The Room by Tommy Wazo. If people, you all know who The Room is, you can Google it. You know, you can Google Tommy Wazo in The Room if you don't know what it is. But people go to multiple screenings of The Room and have wonderful fun with it. And it's not just because they think the film is bad. They just have the film is is synonymous with a good time for them. So what what is wrong with them? Yes, they think the film is bad, but why is their enjoyment um, less valid than the enjoyment someone has of Citizen Kane or someone who genuinely enjoys one of the Transformers films again lots of critics hate those films a Michael Bay Transformer film but again what is better than their enjoyment than the critics enjoyment now you could say that ultimately I wouldn't read a critic if they were just saying I went to see Transformers there was loads of explosions I quite fancied the woman and there were some proper jokes in it and it was all right. See, I'm getting classes now. Now I'm betraying. So far, I, I've been colonial. I've been patriarchal. And now I'm being, I'm, after this saying that there's no objective quality, I'm being a massive snob by doing a deliberately stupid working class accent. Betraying my own roots here. Anyway, you get the idea. That critic might not be as compelling as the critic who can write about Citizen Kane or Seven Samurai and write a very articulate reasoned sort of critique of what they enjoy about that film. At the same time, actually, I love listening to Mark Kermode talk about how much he hates Transformers films. So there is that as well. You get my point. People, I, I, I think it's, it's just like, it's really interesting because I, people feel really offended by this idea of uh, there being no objective quality in art. And it's really interesting to hear the defences. People get quite anxious about it when I mention it. And I'm not saying that what critics are saying aren't valid. And I'm not saying critics' own sort of rubrics of quality aren't valid. I'm just saying that ultimately this isn't something that's objectively as in it's written into the fabric of the universe. Um, it isn't. And yet people feel quite, oh my goodness. I think whenever we say something isn't objective, people think everything's going to go crazy and cats are going to marry dogs and um, 
and all TV show channels will just show repeats of Manimal, which would be amazing in, in my book. But you get the idea. But I don't think things will fall apart. I think things just carry on when we say they don't have an objective, teleological, um, divinely ordained reality. I've got one more hot takey type point or wandering off on one point, And that is this. Um, I, I was a bit unkind about Twitter. Uh, or I was critical of Twitter a few weeks ago because I spelt, felt that social media always adds a moralizing dimension to our appreciation of art and how that moralizing dimension has crept into art and how we can't really make art that's maybe visceral or amoral is maybe mirroring back our reality to us um, like the ballads and like NWA and stuff like that without giving us um, prescriptive moral judgments alongside that relaying of reality but i think so it seems like i'm down on social media in particular twitter but i think there is something about twitter which is actually very similar to how alexander pope wrote so yes we say that twitter because people have to people have to be witty on twitter for a start so because of the character limit more so when it was 140 now it's 280 i think but when it was a smaller character limit you really had to distill the point you were making but some people say still it's it's shallow some 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 points are nuanced and you have to go into detail about them but that's where we had this amazing other thing from twitter which is you didn't have to say it in one tweet if it was a nuanced issue you could say it in a thread. You could write another tweet underneath that tweet. You could write another tweet. You can still under that tweet and you can have a series of tweets. But because it's still broken up and fragmented, the people that write really good Twitter threads to communicate an idea do it in that piece by piece way. That reminds me of Alexander Pope and the heroic couplet and how he also builds up his argument in a piece by piece way and each piece has to be clear in its own sense and each piece has to lead on to the next piece and i think the twitter thread is is some of the most articulate and most concisely argument points and i think we always go with this idea that all nuance is just lost with twitter but actually the, t the tweet i think is like the um heroic couplet of our day in the sense that they can be used as these atomic entities they are the atomic entity that can be built up into an argument and great wit um, can be displayed in this argument i'm going to leave it there um i said something about women <laughs> earlier i haven't looked at a lot of woman poets and i intend to i really intend to when we get to the victorians and the moderns when many more woman poets were published also um poets that aren't white so black and asian poets as well um we just don't get a lot of them in these earlier times that i'm looking at one reason being because even working class and middle class people weren't really expected to write poetry these were white men as well. You know, look at Pope, someone who became a very popular poet, but was never fully accepted in his time, much like Keats as well. So that's my justification. I just want to hit these particular points um, before I can really vary things up. So please stay with me as I as I hit the final straight of the canonical dead white men. But things will change, um, I promise. And this podcast will be a bit more varied. That said... I am still going to try and keep things within the public domain, but there are some poets that I will write to their estates and ask them for permission. But while it's early days for these podcasts, if these estates say um, you've got to pay us this much money, then I won't be able to do it. But maybe if the podcast does well later, if I'm able to monetize it, I can put some money into buying permission to use other um, modernist poets who still are kind of old enough to fit into our rusty poets ethos. I can at least vary things beyond the sort of many, many dead white men that we have in the literary canon. Hey guys, that's the end of it. I hope you really enjoyed this week's podcast. I will see you next Saturday. And as I always say, if you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe if you're able to subscribe on SoundCloud. If you're listening to this on Spotify, you can follow the podcast as well. If you're on iTunes, then hey, could you leave a could you leave a, a nice review if you're enjoying it? That would really help me. And if you're able to share it on social media, if you're able to share it with your buddies, if you're able to tell someone with your own mouth into their own ears or anywhere else, hey, there's a really good 
podcast called Rusty Sonnets. Just look up Rusty Sonnets via any good podcast provider and you will find it. You'll be doing me such a good service. That's the end of it. Have a good week. Take care. Goodbye.